0: I invite you to turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Galatians, chapter 5. We are today beginning a new section in this letter. The first section, chapters 1 and 2, was about history, Paul's history with Galatians. 3 and 4 was about doctrine, these heavy doctrinal sections that we work through. And then 5 and 6, the last third of the letter is ethics, how do you live? And today we're going to focus on the first six verses of chapter 5. But in order to give that more structure, we'll read the first 15 verses. Let us read Galatians 5, verse 1 through 15 together. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I... For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And again, we will focus on the verses 1 through 6. So I encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we go through it line by line. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, yesterday, the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla took place at Westminster Abbey in London, England. In the months leading up to this event, we've heard the usual rumblings of Republican talk here in Australia. We are, of course, a constitutional monarchy so King Charles III is our king as well. There are many who believe that Australia should no longer be a constitutional monarchy, but should become a republic instead. This past week, Troy Bramston, writing for The Australian, wrote that, quote, the monarchy is a profoundly anti-democratic institution. It cannot be defended by anyone who believes in freedom or equality or the right to choose our own head of state. He concluded by saying, it is time we fully severed the link with Great Britain. Now, you may not agree with any of that. Perhaps you are a fervent monarchist. Perhaps you are a closet Republican. Whatever the case, this weekend has given us all the opportunity to reflect on the relationship between authority and personal freedom. We all have our own ideas as to what personal freedom looks like. There was a lot of discussion about this during the COVID lockdowns a few years ago as well. The discussion was quite divisive in some churches. But for all the talk about personal freedom, we don't really have a clear idea what it's about, do we? It is with these things in mind that we encounter our text this morning. And our text says to us, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So he's assuming here that Christ wants us to be free, that in fact he died for it, but that it's not automatic if it was automatic, then Paul would not have had to warn us to avoid a yoke of slavery. So what is this freedom? Do we? Is it something we have already? Is it political? Is it something different? And how do you hold on to it? So this morning we're going to consider these questions together. We will consider that for freedom, Christ has set us free, we'll consider the questions, what is this freedom, and how do you hold on to it? It's certainly a truism that we live in a a most permissive age. Our age says that you can do whatever you want, with whomever you want, whenever you want to. If you want to be married to one person, and... Be faithful to your spouse and take your children to church your whole life. That is perfectly fine. But if you want to be an unrepentant fornicator who lives for himself, that's perfectly fine as well, according to our society. It's up to you. You choose. Most people believe that a free society is one in which you have the freedom to do whatever you want. There's only one rule that everybody agrees on, and that is that you are not to hurt Other people. Many people are opposed to anything that interferes with this pursuit of freedom. They do not want to be held back. They do not want to be told that what they are pursuing is immoral or wrong. All you need is love, they say. But if love is all you need, then why is there so much lawlessness in society around us? Why is there so much dysfunction? Why do we have an ever-increasing plethora of government services to regulate all these aspects of life that people should be able to regulate themselves? Is it not because so many people have shown themselves to have no direction and no purpose in life? Ever since the sexual revolution of the 60s, we've we've seen steadily increasing rights to do whatever we wanted. But look at where it's gotten us as society. It wasn't that long ago that the LGBTQ community lobbied for equality in marriage, didn't they? And we were told very clearly this is just about equality. Well, witness what has happened since then. The door has been opened to all sorts of other movements. Most notably, the transgender movement. How utterly confusing has all become. How strange that within one generation, those who are in positions of authority are not even able to define for us what a woman is. There's confusion and darkness all around us. People are not even able to have a reasonable conversation about these things anymore. Nevertheless, people are not willing to entertain even the possibility of moderation Witness, for example, the discussion around the the monkeypox virus. It's died down a little bit now. But woe to anyone who dares to publicly suggest that the best antidote to that and to other venereal diseases or diseases that are, are transmitted through sexual activity, that the best antidote to that would simply be abstinence. Woe to the person who suggests abstinence and self-control as a public health measure that's because people are utterly enslaved to their desires and we should not be surprised at this the bible teaches us that those who follow their pleasures eventually become slaves to them in second peter 2 verse 19 the apostle writes that they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved In other words, if you follow your desires, they will master you and then lead you on. The Greco-Roman philosophers had already noticed this, and they offered their own thoughts. Greco-Roman thought was obsessed with this idea of personal freedom. They tried all sorts of things. For instance, already three centuries before Paul lived, the Epicureans taught that there is nothing after death. Therefore, they said, the supreme good that you can pursue in this life is pleasure. On the other hand, the Stoic philosophers who lived around the same time taught that the true freedom in life comes from mastering your own passions. They were all about self-control. So these were two very different schools of thought. Now, what the Bible teaches is something totally different. It doesn't fall into one category or the other because the starting premises are different. The Bible has a totally different starting point when it comes to human beings in the first place. The Greeks and the Romans assumed that human beings by nature are free. The Bible, however, teaches that they are by nature hopelessly enslaved and are not able to free themselves. Jesus said, Everybody who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And that makes sense for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. There's no freedom when you are compulsively looking for the next big thing. So Scripture teaches that freedom, true freedom, is tied to redemption. Redemption. Something that God needs to do for you. And that already began in the Old Testament with the giving of the law. We heard it from Deuteronomy 5 this morning. And in Leviticus 26, verse 13, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. Instead, he says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So true freedom is not Primarily political, true freedom is spiritual. It's freedom through redemption. This idea of freedom through redemption was reflected in the teachings of Jesus as well. His kingdom is not of this world, it didn't fit in any of these heathen categories or thought structures of freedom. Instead, his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom formed out of all those who are delivered from sin and brought into a relationship through Jesus Christ. He said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So what does this freedom actually include when Paul says... In 5 verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. What does that freedom actually include? It includes four things when you look at the letter in context and when you look at Scripture in context. This freedom includes four things. First, it is freedom from Old Testament law. First, it's freedom from Old Testament law. Remember that the Galatian Christians to whom Paul wrote this letter were new to the faith And they were—they had been led astray by Jewish teachers who were telling them, if you want to be right with God, you need to keep the entire Old Testament law. But the whole point of the Old Testament law was to bring God's people to the realization that they would never be able to keep it. Christ died so that God's people would finally be set free from the demands of the law because they were fulfilled in Him. Second, Christ freed us from the curse of the law. The curse comes on all those who break God's commandments. What is the curse of the law? Ultimately, death. Death is the ultimate punishment for breaking God's law. Not just biological death, but eternal death. A second death, as the Bible calls it. being Having God's favor turned away from you forever and encountering his wrath. Death is the ultimate punishment for breaking God's law. As Paul wrote later in Romans 5 verse 12, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Christ set us free from that. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Christ fulfilled the law. He delivered us from this punishment of death. So to believers, death when they die... Was not a payment for sin. Death puts an end to sin. Death is deliverance in Christ. Death is an entrance into eternal life. Third, Christ freed us from the fear of death. So not just from death as punishment, but also from the fear that comes with that. The letter to the Hebrews says that Jesus took on a human nature so that through death... Through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Fear of death. Death is still an enemy. It's a terrible enemy. But it is not an enemy that we need to fear. It is not the great unknown to us. We don't need to be afraid of death. It is not something unnatural to us in the sense that that we have no understanding of it. Christ has gone through death. Christ is with us in our death. Christ has delivered us from the fear of death. And in that, delivered us from all our other fears. Because if you think about it, all of our other fears are really variations on the fear of death, are they not? What does death represent? It represents destruction. It represents the unknown it represents loss of control those those things can enslave you and Jesus suffered all those fears and he broke them all on the cross when he reconciled us to God so we might still struggle with those fears from time to time but they do not define us anymore when we struggle we need to remember that Christ has set us free Our fears do not define us anymore. They don't master us anymore. They do not direct us anymore. We've been set free from the fear of death. Fourth and last, Christ freed us from the flesh. Remember that the flesh is all that is sinful, all that is this worldly about us. It's often referred to as the old nature as well in Scripture. Scripture. It's all of our compulsive sins and all of our desires and those were all done away with in him. He freed us from the flesh. Paul writes that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's in Romans 6 verse 6. So a Christian can still fall into sin, but a Christian is no longer mastered by sin. Therefore, there can never be such a thing as a Christian who lives in unrepentant addiction or unrepentant adultery or unrepentant anger. Christ has freed us from all of those things. Therefore, if anyone loves these sins more than Christ, it is because that person was never a believer to begin with. Christ has set us free but this is not a freedom to do whatever you want or to be whatever you want. Think about it. Our natural setting is to be self-centered. Yes, there may be times when we are considerate of others, but our default setting in life is to be self-centered. That's how we're born. We're all born as idolaters. It's one of the most tragic things about human beings an idolatry centered on the self so if christ sets us free who are we going to live for if we go back to living for ourselves then we show that we've never understood what true freedom was to begin with that's why deliverance from sin has to be a deliverance for service to Christ. It cannot be anything else. It has to do with belonging. The Lord Jesus taught us that this comes down to a question of belonging. There is nobody on the face of this earth who is truly independent. Either you belong to one master or you belong to another. Either you live for yourself and you show that you still belong to Satan, or you live for God. But there is no place in this universe where you get to be free from the curse and from death and from sin and from the flesh and live for yourself and still belong to God. In fact, the very term becomes a self-contradiction. How can you live for yourself but belong to God? That makes no sense. It's in the, in the very nature of things that that is a contradiction. A lot of people live as if it's not. A lot of people live as if it's true, but it simply doesn't make sense. It is a contradiction in terms. Our relationship with God runs much deeper than that. Scripture uses the terminology of being God's servant or his slave. The Greek word is doulos. It could mean both, either. It could mean either, either servant or slave. The distinction between these two was not that big. But the word implies God's total ownership over us. But that ownership is not destructive, it's not a destructive ownership. An earthly slave master tries to squeeze every last drop of work out of his slaves. A bad employer will be focused only on productivity with no regard for the health and well being of his workers. But God is not that kind of master. When we belong to God, we are restored to our true purpose in life. Sin is inherently dehumanizing. Sin takes us away from our true purpose in life. What is our true purpose? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, drawing on Scripture, puts this in the very first question and answer. If anyone ever asks you, what is the purpose of life? What's the point of life? You can point them to the Westminster Catechism. First question and answer. It says, the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the purpose of life. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our creation mandate ties into that. To rule and have dominion. But that's only possible now when Christ ransoms us, body and soul, from all our sins. And when he does, we belong to him completely. That sense of total ownership of us and of our lives is reflected in Romans 6 verse 22. Here the Apostle Paul writes, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. In other words, Christ has set us free. Since Christ has set us free, we belong to God. Since we belong to God, we have been restored to a true purpose in life. And our true purpose is to reflect the character of God in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. That's what true freedom is. That is why Christ set you free, so that you could become that. But how do you hold on to it? Well, we'll pay attention to that in our next point. Paul writes Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What is this yoke of slavery? In context, as we saw, it is primarily the law, the law itself. And that's reflected in other places in Scripture. In Acts 15, verse 10, for instance, the Apostle Peter refers to the law as a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. We've seen this many times now in the last months, how the law is good in and of itself, but it is because of our sin that human beings are unable to keep it. Now these Jewish teachers were teaching the Galatian Christians that a Christian is someone who keeps the law of God. And you know, if that resonates with us, that just goes to show that maybe in our minds we're not that different from these people. They would say a Christian is someone who keeps the law of God. And what they meant was the law comes first, and then faith is another form of law-keeping. And Paul has been teaching them all along, trying to get this idea into their heads that this order is backwards. It is not right to say that the law comes first and that faith is another form of law-keeping. No, faith comes first. Faith in Jesus Christ in his atoning sacrifice and his redemption, that faith. Faith comes first. God's law is a guide for how we live afterwards. And anyone who changes the order is turning the law into a yoke of slavery. Now, there are many people, and perhaps you're one of them, who think, does it really matter? Is it that big of a difference? After all, as long as you live a good life, God should be happy with you, right? But we've seen it doesn't work that way. You can only approach God, you can only ever approach God by His standard, not by yours. Even if your standard is His law, Even if you're using it to make yourself better in his eyes, you have still departed from Christ. In fact, Paul writes in verse 2 if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Circumcision here represents taking on the whole law as a way of being right with God. If you do that, he says, Christ will be of no advantage to you, he will not be able to bring you salvation. Why not? Very simply, because you've never surrendered to him in true faith. You're still trying to make your salvation an exercise in teamwork. In verse 3, he explains what happens if you misuse the law anyway. He says... I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. At that point, it stops being faith. He said that already in 3 verse 11. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. If you take on this yoke of the law, you might appear righteous to other people. You might become like Paul himself. Before his conversion, driven, dedicated, but spiritually dead. If you submit yourself to the law because you believe that's how you become right with God, you will perish. The law showed God's ultimate intention for our lives. And his ultimate intention for us was to have fellowship with him. That's already evident from the preamble to the Ten Commandments when he calls himself our God. And in Romans 7 verse 10, Paul writes that the commandments promise life. They promise life and fellowship with God if you are able to keep them. And we can't. So in that sense, the law becomes a curse. Christ delivered us from this curse by fulfilling the law and suffering its punishment on our behalf. The law actually pointed to him. It was fulfilled in him. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, Paul writes in Romans 10 verse 4. So now if you go back to the law as a means to be right with God, you're going back to something that is no longer fit for purpose. In fact, in verse 4, Paul writes that those who want to be justified by the law have actually fallen from grace. That word grace is, is deliberate. You've fallen away from grace. What does grace mean? Well, it reminds us that God does not deal with us according to our ability or to our law keeping. He deals with us on the basis of Christ and his ability and his atonement and his merit If you then introduce any human merit into this equation, you've literally fallen away from grace. It follows from the nature of the thing. If grace means that God does not deal with us according to our ability, and you bring your ability into the equation, then you have, by definition, fallen away from grace. There's no two ways about it. It cannot be anything else. You've left it behind. Because human effort and God's grace are and always will be, strictly incompatible. There are consequences if you get these things wrong. One example comes from the life of the Reverend Samuel Marsden. Who was he? He lived from 1765 to 1838. He was the second minister in Australia, Samuel Marsden. His predecessor came with the first fleet. You remember the first fleet that that brought the first convicts to Australia during colonization? And Marsden ended up serving as a magistrate as well, as a pastor. And because he was a magistrate, he had the right to sentence people to punishment. And you know what his nickname was? He became known as the flogging parson the flogging parson, because of his strict discipline. He considered these convicts to be so depraved that only the strictest punishment, the most brutal punishment, could impose any kind of morality on them. So for him, the law came with a whip. But all he did was to further tighten the chains of their slavery, not just... Physical, but spiritual. It's actually a profoundly sad thing that in the end, due to a very misunderstanding on this point, he was not able to properly fulfill his role as a minister. There was no gospel in his dealings with these people. He became, in a sense, a slave driver himself. And so will we. How then can we avoid this slavery? How can we stand firm in the freedom of Christ? Because we will become like this if we live only by the law. So how do we avoid this slavery? How do we stand firm in the freedom of Christ? By confessing our faith in Him. That's exactly what we're invited to do in verse 5. You notice a shift in pronouns. In the passage so far, he's um, spoken, he's used the pronoun you. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And then in verse 5, he switches to we. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The word we invites us to join in. Together in faith through the Holy Spirit, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, some of you might wonder, why does he refer to the hope of righteousness? I thought it was a sure thing. All this time, you've been hammering home the point that we're righteous by faith, when you believe you have it, and then uh, suddenly he talks about the hope of righteousness. What is this? Well, it's, it's really just a question of translation, Grammatically, what he's trying to convey is the sense that this is the hope that is righteousness. In other words, we have righteousness already through faith. On the day of judgment, it will be confirmed. The book of your life will be laid open before the judge of all the earth, and you will not be afraid. So you can live with hope for the future. You can, in fact, eagerly look forward to Judgment Day. Dear brothers and sisters, do you look forward to Judgment Day? Do you personally look forward to Judgment Day? Because the answer to that question can say a lot about your own spiritual life and your own spiritual health. Do you personally look forward to Judgment Day There's not a shadow of doubt or fear about that for those whose hope is in Christ because in him we have an eternal righteousness that is ours now. It is complete. Nothing we do can add to that. Nothing we'll ever take away from it. This is the core of the Christian faith. If you understand this, you have peace. Then you don't need to worry that you've forgotten some small thing that will be held against you. You can just focus on living. For as he says in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. He's not suggesting you need works to be saved after all, but his point is that true faith will always show itself in works. Calvin put it nicely he said faith alone justifies but that faith is not alone it's a bit catchy isn't it faith alone justifies but that faith is not alone it always comes with works but those works will grow out of that faith they will grow naturally and that's why now in chapter later on in chapter 5 and when it comes to chapter 6 Paul will write about that about the fruit of the spirit Fruit is something that grows by itself. You can care for the tree, but in the end, the fruit grows by itself. All it needs is maintenance. And that's where the law comes in. That's where the law comes in. The law serves to guide us in bearing fruit, and that's why we pay careful attention to it. That's why it is read at the beginning of every worship service. We should always listen carefully. But we should not look to the law for that which we can ultimately only receive through Christ. If you understand this, you will always be free. No matter who rules over you. No matter what your circumstances are. You will be free. If true freedom really is freedom from sin, death, the devil and the flesh, then we will always be free in Christ no matter what happens to us. And whenever we begin to struggle we simply turn to the Lord and he will set us free again. Some have said that historically a constitutional monarchy is the most stable form of government. Maybe it is and we can be thankful for our new king but our stability runs much deeper than that. Our stability comes from the work of Christ. Our king reigns, our king really does reign forever. The people said to King Charles, may the king reign forever. May the king live forever. But the fact is that he will not reign forever and he will not live forever in this life. But our true king does reign forever. Our true hope is in the gospel. That's where we find true freedom. And when we have found it, no one can ever take it away from us again. Amen.